the privilege of being with you. Lance, thanks for sharing your pulpit. I would have to honestly say, I've said it many times, uh, that besides my wife, Lance is the best friend I've ever had. Um, all, all my friends and connections, uh, all my rich ministry opportunities have all been a result of, of his tutelage, his humility, his connection. Uh, um, I have a book on John just because a publisher spoke to him about publishing him. He said, yeah, we could talk about that sometime, but I have a colleague who's looking for a publisher, a book that's already done, and if it weren't for you, I don't think I would have gone to the trouble of uh, recording CDs. Uh, just Lance has a uh, this ability to promote others uh, above himself that's unique, uh, particularly in a gifted man. And so uh, you are my finishing school. You are, uh, you are my brother, the one I never had. So thanks for letting me be here. It's a delight to meet you. Um, I'm thrilled for you in this wonderful transition the Lord has you in in this unique chapter of this church's history. As the blending of two fellowships come together, um, I can commend to you that God has indeed sent you a real pastor. Um, these days, it, you can probably find someone who's willing to, to perhaps be a talking head in a pulpit, and then you're, it's possible to find others who might be a, a tender counselor come alongside you, but, but the New Testament says that a pastor has to be everything that a shepherd is called to be, both in the pulpit and out of the pulpit. And, and while Lance, as no pastor, is a perfect man, um, it's kind of like I say at, at a wedding, neither of you are perfect, but you're perfect for each other. I can just say you're, you're perfect for each other, and God's brought you a man whose heart is to be a true pastor in every sense of the New Testament word, and I can say that as someone who's known him a long time, so I'm thrilled for you. I'm thrilled for the leadership God's brought you, and so uh, Lance asked if I would come, and what have you been preaching recently? I said, well, it's interesting. I just preached a, a sermon on unity from Psalm 133, and he said, uh, that might be apropos. And so, uh, turning your Bibles with me to Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is one of a collection of 15 psalms that all bear the heading, a song of ascents or a pilgrim song. And the reason they're called that is because this little collection of 15 songs within the 150 psalms functions as a little tiny hymnal within the big hymnal of songs that were sung together by, by pilgrims who three times a year as required by the law would go from wherever they lived to these, these times of high festival worship in Jerusalem. So for the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Passover, for the Feast of, of Weeks or First Fruits or Pentecost, or for what's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, those three times a year faithful Jewish males were required by God to go to Jerusalem. But usually the men didn't go alone, they gathered their families, and usually a single family didn't go alone, they would gather with other families and kind of in a, in a caravan, an entourage, make their way to Jerusalem three times a year. So these became high festival holidays that entire families looked forward to. And these songs were sung by them as traveling songs. The reason they're called songs of ascent is because no matter where you lived in Palestine... If you were going to Jerusalem, it was literally an uphill journey, so a songs of ascent, songs of going up. So traveling songs, uh, meant to pass the time and to reinforce and anticipate the themes of worship that would be enjoyed once they got to Jerusalem. So in my mind, in your mind today, think Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. I mean, circled on the calendar, all the rest of the year would revolve around these activities. And so these are things that everyone looked forward to. High times in the life of, of faithful Jews. Uh, you may recall this is actually the setting in which 
Remember when Mary and Joseph went up to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12 years old, and then after a while, journeying back to Nazareth, they realized nobody knows where Jesus is, only to discover He's back in Jerusalem in the temple, stumping the clergy of the day and doing His Father's work. You, you might have wondered, how is it that the parents could not know where He is? Well, because they traveled in a throng, and everybody thought, everyone assumed He must be in this wagon or He must be in this wagon. And so it's in that context that I have little doubt that Jesus and his family and other faithful Jews probably memorized these psalms. You'll notice if you study them that they're all quite short and would have been easily committed to memory, but probably not even memorized on purpose. In much the same way that I could begin quoting a Christmas, uh, a Christmas carol to you, and you'd probably be able to finish the verse out. Why? Because you sat down with a hymnal once and tried to memorize Christmas carols? No. But by doing them year after year, they just kind of get embedded in your heart and in your mind. So we're traversing ground that I think functioned like that in Israel's life. Well-loved, well-familiar. Uh, so some of the themes are pretty obvious as to why you would sing these. For instance, the best known of the Pilgrim Psalm, Psalm 121, has those lines in it, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He won't let you get sunstroke by day, and the moon won't, won't uh, cause you to fray on the emotions on the inside. So it, it was a traveling song, a prayer for safety. Uh, the other well-known psalms uh, in this collection are 127 and 128, both of which celebrate family. Uh, the one who tries to build a house labors in vain if he doesn't build the house with the Lord. Uh, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of arrows, the children who are like arrows. So it would make sense that in these times when you're celebrating family life and the goodness of God is displayed in family to sing these kinds of songs. And of course, Psalm 133, a psalm on unity, it's pretty intuitively obvious as to why they'd be singing this at this time, because the people of God have gathered in Jerusalem from all over, people who know each other well, people who don't know each other at all, they've descended at the same time on Jerusalem, and there around the things of God, it makes sense that they would celebrate their unity together. And so Psalm 133, it lies there so simply on the page, three verses long. You might even say, how could you possibly get a sermon out of three verses? Bad news for you is it takes me 15 minutes just to introduce myself. So I had no problem running 30 minutes over in the last service. So somehow I'll manage. Psalm 133, let's read it together. And then we're going to look at some insights that David offers us as to unity. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. I chose this psalm about a month ago to preach in our church in Florida simply because I'm working my way slowly through wanting to have preached all 150 psalms, and right now I'm interested in this collection of these 15 pilgrim psalms. And When I first began studying the psalm, I, I was unsure prior to my study, is this a psalm saying that God is the source of unity, or is this a psalm saying when you get unified, God will bless you? And my study yielded this conclusion. The answer to my question is yes. It's both. 
It is a psalm saying that the source of unity is indeed God. That's why you see in this psalm three times, coming down, coming down, coming down. So here you are, journeying upward while singing a song about something that's going downward. And that is that uh, in all these imagery that, that David uses, he's simply saying this, unity within a group of God's people is a blessing that comes from heaven. You can't manufacture it, you can't, you can't contrive it, you can't create it. You could create uniformity, that's easily done, but you can't create spiritual unity. It's a gift from God, it comes down from heaven. And at the same time, it's a psalm that says, but if God has blessed you with this gift of unity, and then you're living in it and protecting, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit that God has already created, then God indeed does pour additional blessings on you. So I described this psalm to, to my children as, it's like a double dip. It's like a double dip ice cream cone. I mean, you, God gives you, boom, dip one, unity that only He can provide. And then dip two, when you live in that unity, an additional blessing, and we'll discover what that is by the end of the sermon. So what you have here is David simply saying this, uh, there are three aspects of the rich blessing of unity that you need to grasp. So let's look at these three aspects of the unity God provides. Number one, an, exp an, exp an exclamation, just a, a giant exclamation point where David simply says this, spiritual unity is a rich blessing, period, paragraph. Look how he says it in verse one. Behold, behold just stands there like a, a marker. And he's just saying, pointing to something, I, get, I need your attention, look at this, pay attention to what follows, behold, pay attention, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. The first word that he uses to describe unity is the word good. Uh, it's used sometimes of something that's just intrinsically good. For instance, the Bible says repeatedly, God is good. It's intrinsic to his nature, his goodness. So it's objectively, morally right. It's valuable. It's uh, God is good. He On the days, six days of creation, he declared creation was good. That's that same word. So in the same way that God would say, day one, two, three, four, five, six, good. On day six, very good. Now God is saying this, unity, spiritual unity amongst brothers is good. So it's intrinsically good. But the word is also used to describe things that are attractive, things that are beautiful. For instance, Sarah's beauty, which made uh, Abraham so nervous, you may recall, how in fear of man he sinfully fudged on the truth and declared, she's not my wife, she's my sister, which was a half-truth. She was indeed a half-sister, but she was also his wife. But the reason he's fri frightened is because she's so beautiful, but it's this word, she's so good. She's so beautiful. So you can see the word goodness doesn't necessarily just mean morally intrinsically right. also has a sense of attractiveness to it. You may recall after the walls of Jericho fell that God's people were forbidden to pick up anything. Don't take any of the spoils from Jericho. And one man named Achan, who became famous for his, his taking, his seeing, his coveting, and then burying under his tent certain treasures. One of the treasures that he stole was a piece of cloth, a mantle, that he described, I saw it with my eyes and it was good or beautiful. It was attractive, so, I, so I've taken. So in that same beautiful sense, in that same intrinsically morally right and attractive, David begins by saying the unity that God provides, the one that comes down from heaven, it's attractive and morally right. It's approved by God. God likes it. He loves it. The second word is the word pleasant. Behold how good and how pleasant it is. 
for brothers to dwell together in unity. This is a word that's often translated in the Old Testament, sweet. And uh, for instance, David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. The sound of, of instrumental music on the lyre is called sweet by the psalmist. The psalmist also say that when we sang together a moment ago, when God's people blend their voices and sing to Him, that it's sweet. It's sweet to Him. It's sweet to each other. David's friendship with Jonathan that Lance alluded to in our, as, a, as a, a pattern for our own friendship and ministry partnership, David's love for Jonathan is called sweet. They had a sweet relationship. That's this word, pleasant. The psalmist says in Psalm 16 that the spiritual riches God has brought to my life have fallen, the lines like the inheritance of property, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. A couple of years ago for Christmas, I gave my wife a, a, a plaque that now is over our doorbell by the front door, and it just says, pleasant place, Psalm 16, 6. That's this word. It's pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. The spiritual inheritance that we've received, the blessings of our salvation in Christ, they are to us. So behold, he just begins with an objective statement. It's good. It's attractive. It's pleasant. It's sweet when God's people live together in unity. Now, it's interesting how in English we have to supply a word here. What is it that's so pleasant and sweet? Look at the second half of verse 1. For brothers to dwell together in unity. Really what the Hebrew text just says is for brothers to dwell together. We supply the word in unity because the, that's the way the word together functions in Hebrew. It, it has to do with partnership, akin to the word that we would, we would say the word fellowship today, a partnership. So, so it's not just enough to say together. The, the word literally just means in proximity, but clearly he's celebrating more than that. He isn't saying, isn't it nice when we all gather together in caravans and go to Jerusalem? It's pleasant, it's good. He's saying something more profound about a spiritual unity there. As a matter of fact, knowing the nature of the human heart, most of us would say, think, think family road trip. So it probably means you were up too late the night before packing, finishing up, something you said you wouldn't do but ended up doing anyway. Now you've gotten up early on top of it because that's what Americans do. We do. In, in Europe, in America, we go on a vacation. We emphasize vacating a space and taking up another one. In Europe, you take a holiday, days set apart, but we're Americans, so we're going to conquer our holiday. So we're going to stay up too late getting ready, and then we're going to get up there early the next morning, and then if it's 6.01 and you were supposed to leave at 6, then dad's grumpy already, mom's exhausted, kids aren't happy, and so you get in the car. Proximity alone on a road trip doth not equal unity. <laughs> and if you're going to sing a song together, it probably doesn't sound like these songs. So, so he clearly means more than just proximity, though technically that's what the word means. The way the word is used in the scriptures is to talk about doing something together, a shared task. For instance, taking up against our enemies in Israel, fighting together or gathering together. In Psalm 2, remember the nations, the kings of the earth get together and they take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So it's the fellowship there of rebellion against God. So this together, it doesn't have anything to do with physical proximity. It has to do with a shared unity. Psalm 34, David says, um, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name. Here's that word, Together, in unity, let's exalt God. Psalm 86, 11, I love this use of the word. The, the psalmist is admitting, he said, my heart is divided, it's all over the place. And so he prays this, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. I don't want any stray pieces out here, so unite my heart. That's just where bring my heart together. 
So when David says it's good, it's beautiful, it's attractive, it's pleasant, it's sweet, when brothers dwell together, not just in proximity physically, but when they get together spiritually. So he's talking about the exaltation of spiritual harmony between brothers and sisters. Not just a common relationship, a common tribe, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm of Zikar. No, something more common relationship or pack together. So he's talking about the beauty of being bound together, not just by race, but by relationship with God. So that's how the psalm begins, just a simple exclamation, unity is good, God declared it so. Then what David does next is give us two illustrations. So we've gone from a declaration now to an illustration that all unity, this kind of unity that's so beautiful, is a blessing that comes from God. And then he'll close the psalm by saying it's a blessing that is, that come, is blessed by God. But for now, unity is a blessing from God. And he uses two illustrations to do it. The purpose of these illustrations is, A, I think to make these truths memorable. So by giving you a word picture of two different things, that, that this unity that's so special, what, what could I liken it to, says David? And he comes up with two pictures so you'll remember them. Secondly, in Hebrew poetry, the way, the way imagery functions is to force you to slow down, to force you to think it through. It's like forced meditation. So rather than just spill it out in direct language, he, he, he shrouds it in a picture and then you have to take time to figure out, well, how is unity like these pictures? So let's dive in together, deaccelerate just the way the Word of God reveals itself. So look at verse 2. Here's the first of two pictures. What is this unity like? He says, it's like the precious oil. At this point, you should be thinking, what kind of oil? Upon the head, Wh whose head? Coming down, the first of three times we hear this, coming down, coming down, coming down. Coming down upon the beard, whose beard? And now finally he reveals it, even Aaron's beard. But it doesn't stop at the head, coming down on the beard. It comes down again, look what it says, coming down upon the edges of his robes, probably meaning the collar, the collar of his priestly robe. Now, the moment that David said something was like Aaron, the first thing that would have come to any ancient Israelite's mind would have been the time of the wilderness wanderings, the time of the tabernacle. Aaron is Moses' brother, the first appointed high priest. And so if we had been living at this time, what would have come to our mind are all kinds of things about, how, about this special oil and then begin to wonder, how is unity like this oil? So first, let's understand the oil and what's being pictured here. God had declared that the high priest would have certain garments that only he could wear. And once those garments and he washed his body and been set apart ceremonially to be the high priest, the only one who could go once a year into the Holy of Holies with a rope around his ankle to offer, having offered a sacrifice for his own sins, then to make atonement for all of God's people. So this is a unique man. And once he's fully clothed in his priestly garments, which includes a turban on his head and a crown on that turban, then the Lord declared that, the, that a perfumer, a man with certain skill, was to take a base of olive oil and then a very detailed recipe, if you will, a formula for expensive spices that would be mixed with this olive oil, would be stored and set apart now. No one's allowed to make this cologne for themselves, strictly the high priest. And so this, this oil would be made and set apart, declared by God, the recipe established by God. And then this oil was to be taken and at his, 
at his anointing, this official commissioning of his office as high priest, it would be poured over that turban and soak into it. And it would be extremely fragrant and beautiful. So everything about it is unique, special, expensive, set apart, holy. And it would soak into that turban and then apparently enough was used that it then would come down on Aaron's beard and then enough that even the beard didn't take it all in. It came down on his robes. Everywhere Aaron went, you'd smell it. It was pervasive. It was unique. It was set apart. It was declared by God. So now we have to figure out, okay, this is that special anointing oil. How is unity like this oil? Most anointings that I've seen, the few times I've seen someone anointed, somebody just pour a a handful of oil into their palm and then maybe get it on their fingers. And I've, I've seen people prayed for and had it rubbed on their forehead. But this is a bucket drenching the man in it. The turban would have been soaked in it, I assume, permanently. If you pour oil into cloth, it's not going anywhere. So every time he put it on to assume his priestly duties, it would be there. It would be in his garments. It would be in his face and his skin. How is unity like this pervasive, fragrant oil? Well, at first glance, you might be tempted, as I was at first, to think, well, it's expensive, it's rare, and unity's pretty rare. Disunity, that's not rare, is it? We find disunity all over the world. But, okay, so maybe it's the rareness of it, perhaps, in part. I think what David is actually wanting us to grasp is two things, because whatever we decide is true about image one, I think needs to be true of image two as well. So whatever he's trying to get across, I think this is it, number one, It's in that phrase, coming down. The recipe for the anointing oil came from God's mouth to Moses' ear to the perfumers. So unity is like this oil in the sense that it's a divine gift. It comes down from God. Secondly is that it wasn't just a handful of, just a a tablespoon of oil. It was a large amount of oil. So the, the other thing we're to grasp is that this unity that's a gift from God, it comes down from Him and it's extravagant. It's more than enough. It's pervasive. It goes everywhere. When God creates unity, it is present. And so in that sense, David says, I want you to stop and think, this unity that's so valued, what's it like? It's like the anointing oil. Second image, look what he says next. Not only is it like oil, it's also, look at verse 3. It's like the dew coming down from Mount Hermon comes down from the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord declared, uh, rather commanded the blessing. Illustration number two is, uh, is this idea of life-giving moisture. So unity is not only like um, Aaron's special high priestly anointing oil, unity is also like life-giving moisture. So again, we have to unpack the image. Let's think it through for a moment. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in the Palestine area. It's 100 miles north of Jerusalem. It stands at about 9,000 feet high. And because of the climate around it, it just is regularly soaked in dew and condensation of water every night. And so what you have is a a green and lush mountain in the midst of a pretty arid and desert-like climate. So it sticks out like a sore thumb, snow-capped almost all year round. I learned there are ski resorts on Mount Hermon today. And at the base of Mount Hermon today, it's one of the most fertile places in the area, lush orchards and lots of agriculture at the base of Mount Hermon. Why? Moisture every day. 
coming down on the mountain. Matter of fact, that moisture eventually makes the headwaters of the Jordan River that would then flow down south all the way to the Dead Sea. So here it is, and again, David's saying, I want, what can I liken this unity to? This unity is like the dew on Mount Hermon resting 100 miles south on another smaller mountain in Zion or Jerusalem. So either what David meant was that the dews of Mount Hermon had become a catchphrase for any lavish soaking dew, or he might be saying, you know how once in a while the climate that hangs around Mount Hermon, the winds bring it south to Jerusalem, and once in a while Jerusalem receives that same rare Hermon-like soaking at night. That's what unity's like. Again, I think what David, is, what David is saying is it comes down. The dew comes down from heaven onto Mount Hermon and now to Mount Zion. So again, he's saying this, it's a gift from God. You can't create this prioritized unity that's so valuable in the mind of God. It has to be given by Him. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that gets translated for this dwelling together is the word in your English Bible usually appears like this, with one mind. This kind of unity is a priority. Listen to what the Scripture says. The early church in Acts chapter 1, with one mind devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, day by day, they continued with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. Acts chapter 4, in the wake of early persecution, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. This is that same idea. In chapter 15, the Jerusalem council following the first New Testament doctrinal debate on what to do with Gentiles who had become believers. It says the Jerusalem council having become of one mind. This is that same phrase, dwelling together in unity. Paul prays in Romans 15, may God grant you to be of the same mind with one another. What a great prayer for you to be praying as two churches come together and learn to love each other as one. Pray together that you may be of the same mind with one another. Listen to how Paul goes on. According to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, you may then with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, contrast those early days in the early chapters of the book of Acts and come all the way to 1 Corinthians. It's not that long before the church can't be characterized by unity in Corinth anymore. And Paul has to write these sad words. Now I exhort you, my brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind. There's that phrase. In the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, that there are quarrels among you. So unity comes from God. We can't create it, but we are given the task of protecting what He creates. So what's it like? It's like holy anointing oil. How is it like holy anointing oil? It comes from God, and it's extravagant and pervasive. What else is it like? It's like the dew that comes down on Mount Hermon and soaks everything. You know how if you roll over against a tent in the middle of the night in the right place, that you're going to wake up with a soaking wet arm. Your tent will be drenched in the morning if you're in this kind of climate. In the same way, he says, this unity that's a blessing and a gift from God to a people, it's, it comes down from heaven and it's pervasive. It will soak everything, like Aaron's turban, beard, robes, 
like the soil around Mount Zion, drenched with the blessing of unity from God. And then he ends the psalm, having taken us through two different images. He simply ends the psalm in, in an unexpected way with a declaration that unity is not just a blessing from God, but unity is blessed by God. So look how he ends the psalm, the last two lines. For there, where? Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the place where the pilgrims have gathered together around the things of God for holy worship. There in that place where I've blessed them with unity that comes down from me, he says, the Lord commanded something. Now, you'd think what he might say is, the Lord commanded us, stay unified. That's not how the psalm goes. Or the Lord commanded, don't fight. Don't be divisive. And the Lord doesn't say that either. Instead, the Lord doesn't address His people at all. In a rare Hebrew construction, what He does here is God addresses blessing as if it were a person. And instead of commanding the people of God to do anything, I've blessed you with unity. Now God says, now when you live in that unity and come together and worship me in that unified state, then I command blessing as if blessing were a person. It's personified. Blessing, go down to those people. And what do you think blessing does? Blessing says, yes, sir. And blessing goes down to those people. There's only two other places where, where God commanding a blessing happens in the Bible. One is in the book of Leviticus where God's people have been told every seventh year, don't plow or plant in your, in, in your land. Let it lie fallow for a year. Let it rest. A Sabbath rest for the land, as it were, on the seventh year. God said, if you do that, then I promise you something. On year six, I will command a blessing, exact same language, on your fields and they will produce enough to carry you through year seven when you won't plant anything. You won't starve to death. Why? Because I will command blessing. Go on the people who have the faith to not plant in year seven. Year six, be super productive. That's God commanding a blessing. Later, if the people of God in the book of Deuteronomy, if the people of God will keep the covenant that God has given them, then God says the same thing. I will command a blessing in your barns and in your family. You'll be fertile in every possible way. You will prosper. Why? Because I command it to be so. So here the psalm ends by saying, I'm the one, I, God, will give you unity. It will come down from me as a blessing, and then I, God, will do this. When you live in it, then I will say, blessing, go down on these people. So you can see how I'm my study. So is blessing uh, sourced in God? Is that what David is saying? Yes. Is David also saying that when you live in unity that God will bless it? Yes, he's saying both. And now the blessing is defined. Look how he, look how he ends the psalm. There, for there, the Lord commanded the blessing, and now the blessing is identified, life forevermore perpetual spiritual blessing throughout your life. That's what I say. Blessing, what blessing is it that gets commanded to come? Spiritual prosperity and fruitfulness. Spiritual thriving. That's the blessing that God commands on a unified people who enjoy and protect the gift of unity that came from Him. Unity is a blessing from God. Unity is then in turn blessed by God. It doesn't get any better than this. So you might be saying to yourself, well, how can we do this? Here we sit in a unique chapter of our history, 
This is not something the Lord does every day, merging two fellowships together. What a great opportunity to show the watching world believers can love each other. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I've alluded to this in how in verse 3 the apostle says this, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So God, by His Spirit, it's already come down from Him, has given unity. Now He's saying, this is how you can preserve it. And I just want to close with three points from this passage. You can look in more detail later as to how can we do this, brother? Okay, David, you've convinced me. Unity is beautiful and attractive and pervasive and divine. It's a gift. So how do we then protect it so that we can receive the additional blessing of God on the unity He's provided? I would say three ways. This is, how to, this is the how part of the sermon. So how do we do this? Number one, keep fervent in your affection for one another. Where do we get that? Well, look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, humility just literally means lowliness of mind, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, in essence, he's saying this, unity cannot be achieved where there are self-willed, self-consumed, selfish, uh, self-loving people. You've got to have the love of others characterizing your heart if unity is going to happen. And when the scriptures call you to show tolerance for one another, what's implied by that? Well, the Bible's just being honest with you and saying there are going to be people in every group of God's people who aren't your cup of tea, who bug you. Some of you... That's me right now. <laughs> Dude, it's 1210. <laughs> You're bugging me. Land the plane. Right? But, but you know how it works with But see, I, I can leave tomorrow, and it's okay if you don't like me. <laughs> Lance wants me to come back. Yeah, the jury's out. But it, the Scripture is just telling you, of course there's going to be people in the church who just rub you the wrong way. And I hate to break it to you, but here's the truth. You, just by being yourself, are going to rub someone else the wrong way. That's who we are. That's how it works. And so if you're going to pr protect this unity that God has provided so that you can be a candidate for the second scoop of blessing from God, then you're going to have to work hard at something. And one of the things you'll have to work hard of is to not love yourself, but love others. Be patient. Be gentle. Tolerate each other. So number one, how can we do this, brother? Keep fervent in your affection for others. I'll call that the unity of affection or love. Secondly, the text goes on to say, you keep fervent. You want unity? Then keep fervent in your pursuit of truth. Look at verses 4 and 5 and 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The last 50 years of pragmatism, the church of Jesus Christ has sent a terrible signal out. Pulpits across our land have said one way, one form or another. Pulpits across our land have said this, unity divides, or rather, doctrine divides. Doctrine won't bring unity. Doctrine hurts unity. Brothers and sisters, on the authority of God's word, here the apostle, divinely inspired by the spirit of God, says to us just the opposite. Doctrine is what unifies us. So let me say, I don't even like the word doctrine. It sounds heady and academic and schoolish. Let me just define doctrine for you. Doctrine is truth. Truth about what? 
truth about the blessings that God has poured on our heads. To say, I don't like to study doctrine is to say, I don't like to study the blessings of God. I don't really want to know any of the details about the good things God has done for me. That's all doctrine is. It's truth about God's goodness to rebels like me and you. Truth about God's dealings in the past. Truth about God's dealing with us in the present. Truth even about God's dealings with us in the future. That's all doctrine is. And so the apostle is saying here, look, I want you to work hard. Be diligent. Break a spiritual sweat. Pant a little. Be diligent to preserve the unity that I've created. And the way you do that is not by jettisoning doctrine, but by coming together under doctrine, sitting humbly under the authority of the Scriptures. Now, of course, in one sense, we know that some doctrines have divided. That's why there are so many denominations. That's why there are so many... But nevertheless, doctrine. if you're going to be unified, it will be unifying around the truth. That's the only unity that pleases God. And so, secondly, if you're going to pursue this unity, keep fervent in your pursuit of biblical truth. So keep fervent in your affection for each other. Keep fervent. I mean, fill these classes. The fundamentals of the faith is, has been used to help ground so many people in their faith. If you've just never had any systematic teaching of what the Bible says, doctrine, about the blessings of God on undeserving people, then I just commend this class to you. The curriculum has been in print for a long time for a reason. It's great. It's organized. It'll just draw so many, answer so many questions. So that'd be, a, if you haven't done something like that, it'd be a great opportunity to, to do what I'm suggesting to you. Keep fervent in the unity of doctrine. Then finally, keep fervent in your service, your duty, your ministry. I call this the unity of duty. Look down in verses 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, that's your ministry. According to the proper working of each individual part, you're in an individual part of this body, and you functioning keeps this body functioning, so that together it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Keep fervent in your service, and your ministry. I, was, I said half-joking to the first hour, you know, next week, I don't think that Joe should have to be up here asking again for anybody to serve in the audiovisual ministry. So I hope he gets up next week and say, there are now too many of you serving in the audiovisual ministry. That would be Aaron's beard and Mountain Dew. <laughs> so th this is just a practical example to say there are needs. Now, all of you can't do that, obviously. But you've got to figure out where you're supposed to be serving. That is part of what brings unity together. There's no better way. The folks will always have a bond for the rest of their life because they put their hand to a plow together and did something. They even did something kind of scary for some of them together. As you join your hands with people you've been in church with for years or people you've just met, something happens when you do ministry together. And so Psalm 133 says it in poetry. Ephesians 4 just says it, distilled, straight-up truth. Work hard to preserve what? The unity of the Spirit, the unity from heaven, the unity that God creates. And when you work hard to preserve it, then the Lord promises additional blessing. Unity is not a small or ancillary topic. Jesus prayed that we would be unified. Jesus commanded unity 
In Mark 9, 4, he says, be at peace with one another. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, be like-minded. It's a command. Why do we have to work so hard to protect unity? Because we're sinners. And sin separates. We have to work hard to preserve it because our sin separates it. Sin separated Adam and Eve from God. Sin caused disunity between the first two siblings, Cain and Abel. It did the same for Abraham and Lot, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, David and his own son Absalom. The nation Israel from Judah separated because of sin. Jesus and Judas were separated because of sin. The church at Corinth is separated because of sin. And if you're not careful, so will church on the hill. Be separated because of sin. Why do we have to work so hard about it? Why does the apostle call us to humbly protect the unity? Because we're all sinners. And if you're not careful, you'll contribute to disunity. Two ways you can do that. One is just by speaking in ways that cause disunity, that intentionally break unity. Speak. And some of you would say, I'm not a gossip. I would never do that. Then you might have to be careful of this additional way of destroying unity. Unity is destroyed not only by those who try to destroy it with, with sinful speech, but unity can also be destroyed by those who just withdraw and decide, I'm not living in unity because I will live alone. Being a solo Christian, a lone ranger. Uh, you won't ever hear me gossiping or bad-mouthing anybody, but I live in isolation. That also tears at unity. Proverbs 18.1 says this, that the one who seeks to isolate himself does so for this reason. He who isolates himself seeks his own desire. The one who's pursuing unity seeks others' wants and desires. The one who goes solo and pulls himself into isolation seeks his own desire and argues with, literally in the Hebrew, gnashes his teeth against all sound wisdom. Wisdom says live in community selfishness and sin says live in isolation. For some of you, the temptation in the coming days as this church learns to become one together and enjoy the unity that God creates amongst His people, some of you will be tempted to speak in ways you shouldn't. Be careful. Be wise. And if you sin, seek forgiveness. I shouldn't have said that. Please forgive me. Lance hasn't told me any stories. I have nothing in my mind except my own human sinful heart. I don't have to know you. I don't have to know your name. I just know the nature of our hearts because of what Scripture tells me and my own experience. But others of you won't be tempted to speak with, to sin with your words against the unity. You just won't join in. You'll stay on the edges, in the periphery, and live in isolation. And you need to understand that according to the Scripture, you're gnashing your teeth against all sound wisdom that says believers live together. They live life together. One of the sweetest things Pastor Jerry down in Florida says to our flock recently, I love this. He just says, hey, we sinners, we got to stick together. That was a sweet thing to hear your pastor acknowledge. We're all a bunch of sinners. Thank you for that. <laughs> and then just say, and here's the deal. we got to stick together. Where else are you going to go? Nobody else is going to put up with us. The world is making it clearer and clearer. They're not going to put up with us. So we're all we've got. So... Isn't it a wonder that the Apostle James would have to say, don't bite and devour one another because then you're going to be consumed and you'll be left alone. So I'm not a hired gun here to, to some secret you know, unity message because I've heard, I've, I've heard nothing but exciting things about your future. But having preached this recently in my own church, it was, 
it was the next sermon in the file. <laughs> so here we are. What a sweet thing the Lord is doing. And uh, God is saying, I give you unity. I give it to you. You can't make it happen. So what does that mean? You need to be praying intensely for the unification of two churches into one. It's like a marriage. You have your honeymoon, and then you have the year after the honeymoon. <laughs> so expect the bumps in the road and rejoice in what God does and do your part to be diligent to preserve the unity He creates. And that makes you a candidate for yet another blessing, life forever. That's what the Lord says He'll give. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have tried to humble our hearts under the authority of Your Word this morning, trying to learn to think Your thoughts after You, in faith, distrusting our perspective, not listening to what our thoughts and our mind has to say, and trying to tune into what You have to say in Your Holy Word. Lord, You love unity. You've commanded unity. You hate disunity that's caused by sin. So, of course, you could be the only one to create unity because you're the only one that can remove the sin that causes division. And so, Father, would you help these people as they're just still learning each other's names, getting to know one another, uh, help, help no one to feel ignored, help no one to hang on the outside, help no one to speak impatiently, but, but help them in humility and affection to love truth enough to gather together around the things that matter most. May they become unified as they serve you and pour out their lives together in ministry. And may this church indeed be like a city set on a hill where nobody can miss the unity and the marvelous thing that you can do here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.